is Our American Stories, and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections Jukin' in the Delta with My Old Man for a publication called HottyToddy.com, one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was. But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who we probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if he had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. 
Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, how old are you? Followed by, okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy. Or, did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, a little piece of earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Stories. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news?
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Decades after it was released in 1977, the movie Slapshot holds up as one of the true classics of American sports films. Its comical depiction of a minor league hockey team resorting to violent play to gain popularity in a declining factory town still resonates with audiences around the world. Much of the film's success has to do with Paul Newman's performance as an aging player coach, but the movie might never have achieved its iconic status without the bespeckled, brawling characters known as the Hanson Brothers, played by former Johnston Jets players Steve and Jeff Carlson and David Hanson. Dave Hanson grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he eventually starred in football, baseball, and hockey at Humboldt High School. He played for the University of Minnesota under legendary coach Herb Brooks, and of course that's hockey. Hanson then played for the Detroit Red Wings and Minnesota North Stars in the National Hockey League. The following excerpts are from a video interview with Dave Hanson by Paul Guggenheimer. It was recorded in Pittsburgh and is provided courtesy of primal interviews with Paul Guggenheimer. The full interview can be seen on YouTube by entering the words primal interviews in the search bar. And by the way, if you haven't seen the movie Slapshot, by all means see it. But you're still going to enjoy this story. Let's go to Dave Hansen. What I tell people is the movie is, is based on more fact and fiction. It was based on a team that I was playing for in Johnstown, Pennsylvania called the Johnstown Jets in 1974-75. And pretty much everything that goes on in the movie happened in one form or fashion. There was three brothers playing for us. They were big, tough, wore glasses named Jeff Jack and Steve Carlson. There was a fellow on the team that... Uh, was called Dave Killer Hansen, i.e. me. But Dave was here. Dave's the killer! Yeah, yeah. Dave's the killer! Dave's a mess. Yeah. And then all the other characters on the team or on the other teams uh, were either real characters of the game or a combination of characters of the game. So, so when Nancy Dowd, who was the sister of one of the players on the team, came down and started following us around and wrote the script, obviously they wrote in the three brothers and the killer and, and a few other people. And when they got around to making the film uh, and casting for the film, uh, they wanted to get a actors like Nick Nolte, Peter Strauss, and you know a, a group of uh, Hollywood actors to play these roles. Of course, because you had Paul Newman, the number one actor at the time of Hollywood, and Struther Martin, and you know other main characters. So they wanted to really have this cast of a actors. Well, these guys could not skate. No matter how they tried, to gave them lessons and took them out in hockey practices and and hired you know private instructors and. They just couldn't get them skate to well enough to make it look like a professional game. So Nancy uh, basically said, why don't we go back and let these guys be themselves and see if that would work out. And basically that's what happened. They came back to Johnstown, they'd be in the Hollywood, you know, George Ray Hill, the director, and Nancy and a few others, and sat the Carlson brothers down and sat myself down and we read a few lines in the in the script. and. They shook their heads, and yet they still took a shot at us and, and pretty well casted us. And so it was going to be Jeff Jack and Steve Carlson were going to be the Hanson brothers. Dave Killer Hanson was going to be Dave Killer Carlson, but Jack ended up going to Edmonton Oilers to, to play uh, when we got around the film, and so they just plucked me out of the Carlson role and threw me in as a Hanson brother, and we were off and running, or off and skating, I should say. 
Okay, guys, show us what you got. When we got first stuck in front of the camera and we're told to act and we're given lines, we really were bad. Uh, we were robotic and uh, it took a couple times and you could see where George Roy Hill was getting frustrated. It finally got to the point where George said, let's stop for a minute, take a breath and pull this aside. He says, okay boys, this doesn't seem to be working too well. He says, so let's try a different angle. What would you do in this situation? You know, here's, he'd set it up and we'd say, I don't know, we would just react. We would probably just spew something off. He said, well, let's give that a try. Next shot, we did and it, we pulled it off, we kind of ad-libbed some stuff and threw in the regular stuff and, and he just says, that's great, don't change it, that's the way we'll roll from now on. So it really boiled down to, quite frankly, that the actors were the one acting, the hockey players or ourselves were just being ourselves. So it was very easy because all they did was, the only thing they changed about me was they put a pair of glasses on me. Everything else was me and we pretty much just had fun doing what we were doing and being ourselves. Cops are coming for the Hansons. The Hansons. We were 20, 21, 22 years old and had ordered the three of us. And um, when they first came to us and they said, hey, would you guys like to do a movie? Uh, we said, well, how long is it going to take? Oh, it's going to take two, three months through your summer. Well, we were used to taking the summers off, going back to Minnesota, playing softball all summer long, drinking beer and getting ready for training camp in the, in the fall. So it's like, okay, well, why not? Let's give this a try. So we had no idea. For us, it was just an opportunity to drink a lot of beer, have free food, get paid for doing something, and, you know, meet Paul Newman and hopefully meet some chicks and hopefully have some fun doing it. So we had no clue, even to the point where before the film came out, Universal Studios came back to us and offered us a seven-year, seven-movie contract deal. And we said, nah, we want to be hockey players. We don't want to be actors. So there's, you know, there's an indication of, of uh, how smart we were. Uh, I was having a pregame nap in my apartment, and there's knocking going on the door. And it wakes me up, and, and there's knocking still going on. I go, what the, you know, so I open the door, and I'm in my underwear and my, in my dirty sweat socks, and I just open the door, and I go, what? And he looks up, and he says, you Dave Hanson? I says, yeah. And he says, I'm Paul Newman. And I says, yeah, well, you are Paul. And he says, yeah. He says, geez, uh, did we wake you? And I says, well, yeah, kind of. And he says, well, I'm, you know, and then he apologized. And uh, I said, you know, I'm going, oh, no, no problem. And I says, what's up? He says, well, I got some, you know, art director uh, with me and a couple movie guys, set guys, and they want to come in and take a look at a hockey player's apartment. We want to see what it looks like. Do you mind if we come in? And I says, Paul, I got no problem as long as you let me go back to bed, uh, you know, and just stay out of my bedroom. You can do whatever you want. So, and he said, before I, I went, he says, yeah, no, we'll be quiet. We just want to look around, take some pictures and some Polaroids. And, and then he says, uh, but hey, Dave, he says, do you, you got any beer in the fridge? I says, yeah, what's up? He says, well, the race is on. He says, you know, I'd like to maybe crack a beer and sit down and watch the race with these guys. He says, nah, no problem. Drink as much as you want. TV's in there. Go for it. So that was the first meeting of Paul, which was the start of a very good and long friendship. Everybody is just on their feet screaming, kill, kill, kill. This is hockey. Really what we were hearing more than anything was the reviews in the hockey community. 
you would hear the, you know the the GMs of the teams or uh, you know the commissioner of the league would say you know that movie's a disgrace you know it doesn't portray hockey and then of course you'd hear the players saying that's absolutely right on you know it's it's the way it is you know obviously a little satirical about it but that's that's the way it is and I'm telling you Prune County is just visibly upset by this display come on down and get places for the home games bring the kids we got entertainment for the whole family it was short-lived. It didn't bother us. In fact, we ended up we would have more fun than anything because now we would go into we'd go into arenas to play a hockey game. And I'll use Dallas as an example. I'd go, I went into Dallas where they hated me, and uh, I always got booed, you know, uh, in warm-ups and this and that. So typically, I'm, I'm skating around in warm-ups one time and I'm hearing the booing, and I finally look up and there's an entire section of fans up there with the glasses and the fake nose and holding the Charlestown Chiefs Booster Club, and it was just hilarious. So everybody started having a good time with it. I'd face off against, you know, against an opponent that we'd fight all the time, and he'd look at me and I look at him, he'd say. Buy a soda after the game. So it was good stuff. Buy a soda after the game? The one that I, I think of uh, mostly is Siskel and Ebert on uh, David Letterman's show. And I think the question was something like David to Siskel and Ebert. Is there ever a movie that you watched, critiqued, and then later on you kind of went back and realized you made a mistake on And they said, absolutely, slap shot. He says, when we first saw Slapshot, you know, we gave it a thumbs down. Later on, looked at it closely and realized, you know, what a great film that was. And now it's historically always in the top ten of the best sports movies of all time. Thanks again to Paul Guggenheimer. And by the way, you can hear all of his work on YouTube. Type in the words Primal Interviews in the search bar. And thanks to Greg Hengler, as always, for finding this and doing the work he always does for us on the producing and editing front. And by the way, again, if you have not seen Slapshot, watch it with a family. I mean, it is just great family entertainment. And you will laugh, and then you'll just keep laughing. You don't have to know hockey to love Slapshot. Dave Hansen's story, the story of one of America's great sports movies here on Our American Story. Our American Stories. And up next, Alex Cortez brings us a story with our regular contributor, Bill Koch. Bill is an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees, and he's well known for winning the world's top sailing competition, the America's Cup, on his first try. Take it away, Alex. Today, Bill tells us the story of the War of 1812 and how this mostly forgotten war somehow led him to sailing almost 150 years later. Well, the uh, War of 1812 was really, some people call it the Second Revolutionary War because what the British did here is they, they made a calculation it was better to withdraw than to spend all the, the money and energy and stuff trying to keep the colonies 
intact. And what started the War of 1812 was two things. The British were insisting, and by force, that any trade going from one U.S. port to another had to be done in a British ship. Which was crazy because it was after we beat those Brits in the Revolutionary War. And also, they wanted to govern all the, the trade routes going to Europe. And then the British Navy would then halt a merchant ship, United States merchant ship, and take off the very young good sailors and essentially make them slaves on the British boats. In fact, I'll tell you something uh, that's very interesting. You know where the phrase son of a gun came from? It means, you know, a, a ba illegitimate child, a bastard. And on the British ships, they would name each cannon, Henry, George, Alex, Bill, Charles, uh, Harold, etc. And that's how they know their gun. Okay, I gotta run to George, uh, get on it. And when they would go into a port uh, to get, say, uh, work done on the boat, they had the Marines on board and they wouldn't let the people, uh, they'd let the British crew members off, but they wouldn't let the uh, impressed people off the boat because they knew they would run away. And so uh, occasionally they would, they would bring on prostitutes to satisfy the needs of the men. And one of the prostitutes would occasionally get, uh, get pregnant and she would have a baby. And they would say, that's a son of a gun because they didn't know whose gun it was. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this, but the Royal Navy was the only meritocracy in the military of England. And the reason that, that it was a meritocracy is because the captains and the admirals shared the bounty with the king. And a lot of Lord Nelson's communications back and forth with the king was arguing over how much, what the split was. And so they wanted the very best captains of their warship. It's economic. And so the, there's this one guy by the name of Captain Bloke who worked his way up from a cabin boy to be captain of the ship. And he also was sort of like Patton. You know, he said, don't die for your country and let the other son of a die for his country. And he said, uh, don't shoot the ship, shoot the, the, the gunners and shoot the officers. Uh, you know. And Captain Lawrence, who was the captain of the Chesapeake, was transferred from the Hornet that sunk the British Peacock in 15 minutes in a battle off Guiana. And then he was transferred to the little sister ship of the Constitution, and that was the Chesapeake. And that was made out of lumber in Boston shipyards that were the leftovers from making these other big ships. And it was a smaller frigate, and whereas the Constitution was much larger. But his ship was about the same size as the British ships, see? And one of the reasons that the Constitution won is because it was longer and bigger, it had more guns, and it had thicker walls. Uh, so the, the cannonballs would bounce off of it. But anyway, this guy, Captain Bloke, was sent over to teach the Americans a lesson. 
because the Americans had won so many sea battles. Actually, in that whole war, British only won three sea battles of the Americans. Out of 42 battles. Well, anyway, one of the three that were lost was the Battle of the Chesapeake and the Shannon. Well, the Chesapeake was in Boston Harbor, and Lawrence, Captain Lawrence, had a real problem with the crew because they all wanted to join the privateers because they'd get more money. See, and they didn't want to get the U.S. Navy, Navy pay. Well, anyway, Captain Bloke toured around Boston for two weeks trying to get Lawrence to come out to do battle, but with a raw crew, and he, he didn't know the ship very well, and he refused. And then finally, uh, Captain Bloke wrote a letter and said, please, would you come out and give me battle? And I promise <laughs> it'll be gentleman to gentleman. Uh, I'll have no other ships awaiting, are, are lying in, in secret, and it'll be, um, it'll be an honorable battle. And we, we both respect each other, and we both have duty to our own countries. And so Lawrence, being a macho guy, immediately set sail. And Bloke then didn't want to fight off Boston simply because if he lost, there was so much anti-British sentiment in Boston that his crew would get fed to the pigs. And that's how they got rid of bodies in those days, because the pigs would beat the, eat the whole body and all the bones and everything. So Captain Bloke set off to go up to Newburyport or <laughs> somewhere up there. And then when he got to where he wanted, he slowed down, backed his sails and slowed down. And then Lawrence, his crew was so green and rebellious, he couldn't get them to do all the maneuvers to cross the T. You know what crossing the T is? Now, if you, if you have one battleship that's going forward, the, another battleship wants to cross perpendicular to it because all of his guns can fire at the ship that's going forward, and the forward ship can only fire his two guns forward, see? But he didn't cross the T, he just tried to come right alongside, and as he did, Bloke's crew just started shooting the crew of Lawrence's boat and they even shot Lawrence. Well, anyway, Lawrence was taken down below, and then they shot the helmsman, so the boat went up head to wind, and then went backwards, got in irons and went backwards. And when it hit, the stern of the Chesapeake hit the bow of the Shannon, then the Shannon boarded the Chesapeake and captured the boat. And the battle only lasted, ironically, 15 minutes as well. But Captain Lawrence died after he was carried down, and his dying words, don't give up the ship, which became the motto in the American Navy. Now, the reason I collect those is because that was one of my mother's ancestors. What Bill's collected are paintings of that naval battle, which he then proceeded to show me at his house. So, you know, of course I fell in love with the sea. I told you I have a collection of all the paintings that were done of that battle. And because my ancestor lost and the English won, uh, only English painters uh, did it. Uh, and here, come in here. This is the guy that beat my ancestor. If you see the painting, he's standing on the American flag. He's got a medal, he's got this, the sword. 
That's here's his sword, and here's his medal. It's funny that you'd want to have that in your house. <laughs> well, I say I'm getting even with the SOB because his family ran out of money and they were selling all this stuff, so I bought it all. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually his ancestors? Or yeah, <laughs> his ancestors. So that I'm getting funny. even with them. <laughs> <laughs> Only in America. <laughs> and you've been listening to Bill Koch. A little bit of history, American history, and a little bit of, well, Bill Koch family history, and a lot more in between here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with our American stories. And up next, Greg Hengler has an unlikely World War II story about George McGovern, the liberal anti-war Democratic presidential candidate from South Dakota, who was soundly defeated by President Nixon in the 1972 election. Stephen Ambrose is one of America's leading biographers and historians. Ambrose's works have inspired Americans to regard its war veterans with newfound reverence. His bestsellers chronicle our nation's critical battles and achievements, from his seminal war works D-Day and Band of Brothers, to undaunted courage and nothing like it in the world, the men who built the transcontinental railroad. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his epic storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories, thanks to the permission from those who run his estate. Here's Stephen Ambrose to tell us a short story from his book, The Wild Blue, The Men and Boys Who Flew the B-24s Over Germany. My next book is a story of the B-24 in the Second World War. And it, it, it's not exclusively about, it's about a squadron and, and then about the bomb group. But one of the members of the squadron was George McGovern, who was a pilot of a B-24, 35 missions, got the Distinguished Flying Cross. Which most people, they, what? Excuse me. He's the most famous anti-bombing, anti-war advocate in the whole world. He flew bombers in the Second World War, and he did. And <laughs> how do you open a story? I open with George. He had come back from a raid over Vienna. He was all shot up with shrapnel and everything, and the plane just barely limping along, and it's a, a good story in itself. And the crew called up to him, Lieutenant, we got a bomb stuck in the bomb bay, half in and half out. Whoa. Well, you can't land a B-24 with a bomb. <laughs> and so they're either going to have to bail out or they're going to have to get rid of that bomb. And George told them, go to work on that bomb so you can get it loose. And they finally called up and they were now over a, a, a part of Western Austria, rural. And they called up, Lieutenant, we got it. We're ready. Drop it, says George. And they were by this time, because they were so badly shot up, down to about 10,000 feet, and it was a clear day, and he could see that bomb going down. He watched and watched and watched. Boom, it hit a farmhouse. And George looked at his watch, and he said, oh, sh I'm a farmer. 
I come from South Dakota. I know what time farmers eat. After the bomb fell, McGovern closed the bomb bay doors and headed home. On the intercom, he and Cooper, the navigator, talked. McGovern asked, what's the highest elevation we're going to go past? Cooper looked at his map, did his calculations, and replied, 8,000 feet, George, 8,000 feet. In an interview, Cooper told me, actually, it was only 7,000 feet, but I added another 1,000 feet because I was engaged to get married. <laughs> Cooper grinned and then added, as George was expecting his first child, he added another 1,000 feet on top of that. Back at Sheragnola was an easy landing. No one had been hurt. McGovern jumped into a truck and rode over to the debriefing area where the Red Cross woman gave him coffee and a donut. An intelligence officer came running up to him. The same officer who had handed him a cable back in December that told him his father had had a heart attack and died. And the bomb group commander told George, you can take tomorrow off. And George said, no, I'm not going to take that excuse. I'm here for a job. This time, however, the officer was grinning from ear to ear. As he handed a cable to McGovern, he said, Congratulations, Daddy, you now have a daughter. The cable was from Eleanor. Their first baby, whom she named Anne, had been born on March 10 in the Mitchell Methodist Hospital. Eleanor concluded the cable, Child doing well, love, Eleanor. I was just ecstatic, McGovern said, jubilant. But then he thought, Eleanor and I have brought a new child into the world today, and I probably killed somebody else's kids right at lunchtime. Hell, why did that bomb have to hit there? He went over to the officer's club and had a drink, cheap red wine. He was toasted and cheered. But he later said, it really did make me feel different for the rest of the war. Now I was a father. I had not only a wife back home, but a little girl. All the more reason why I wanted to get home and see that child. He returned to his tent and wrote Eleanor a long letter. He did not mention the farmhouse, but he couldn't get it out of his mind. In an interview last year, he said to me, that thing stayed with me for years and years, decades. If I thought about the war almost invariably, I would think about that farm. There's been much criticism of the American air effort in the Second World War. People have said, geez, all that production that went into making those bombers, all of the expense of training those pilots and the crews, that would have been better spent on the Army or on the Navy instead of on those big bombers, plus which what they did was just awful. They killed women and children. And they never hit any of their targets, according to the critics. We shouldn't have done it. Well, we don't know. What we do know is the Allies won the war. What McGovern did, what the 741st Squadron did, along with the rest of the 455th Bomb Group and all of the 15th Air Force and the 8th Air Force, most especially in their attacks against oil refineries and marshalling yards, was critical to the victory. They paralyzed the German Army. In April 1944, the Germans were producing oil at a rate of 100%. They had plenty of it. This was down a year later to 1%. Hitler could not get gasoline for his Mercedes. German tanks couldn't move. They became fixed fortifications. The Germans, this is the country of Mercedes. The Germans had no trucks. 
They had become a horse-drawn army fighting a 20th century war. McGovern, his crew, and all the airmen had spent the war years not in vain, but in doing good work. Along with all the peoples of the Allied nations, they saved Western civilization. George Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister of the First World War, was living in London in the Second World War, and he watched these air crews in action, and he had this to say, they were kittens in play, but tigers in battle. In 1985, McGovern was lecturing at the University of Innsbruck, a director of Austria's television, the state-owned station, contacted him to ask him to do a documentary. Uh, to do an interview for a documentary he was producing on Austrian World War II. McGovern reluctantly agreed. It was a woman reporter doing the interview. She said, Senator McGovern, you're known around the world for your opposition to war, but you were a bomber pilot in the Second World War. You hit our beautiful cities, Innsbruck, Vienna. You killed women and children. Don't you regret that? McGovern's answer, well, Nobody thinks that war is a lovely affair. It's humanity at its worst. It's a breakdown of normal communication, and it's a very savage enterprise. But on the other hand, there are issues that sometimes must be decided by warfare after all else fails. I thought Adolf Hitler was a madman who had to be stopped. So my answer to your question is no. I don't regret bombing strategic targets in Austria and her face just dropped. She was terribly disappointed. And George, being George, saw that, and he said, well, there was one bomb that I do regret. <laughs> what was that? McGovern told her about the bomb that had stuck in the Bombay door and had to be jettisoned on March 14, 1945. And what happened? Cut. End of interview. And. The documentary was shown a couple of months later on Austrian TV. And there's a call at the station. It's an old man. He said, I'm a farmer. And that was my farm that he had. <laughs> it was exactly the way he described it. And I want you to tell Senator McGovern that I saw that bomb come out. And I got my wife and our two little girls and we went into the ditch. And nobody got hurt. And I further want to tell you, to tell Senator McGovern, I don't care what other Austrians say, I hated Hitler. I hated him so much that the instant I saw my little farmhouse and my barn go up, I thought to myself, if this shortens the war by one second, it was worth it. The television station called McGovern and told him what the farmer had said. For McGovern, it was, quote, an enormous release and gratification. It seemed to just wipe clean a slate. Thanks very much. And what great storytelling by one of the great storytellers of all time, particularly all things surrounding World War II. And thanks to the Stephen Ambrose estate for allowing us to use that story, and we'll be using more. And my goodness, the B-24 Liberator, you could just tell a story about that. And of course, the Higgins boat. Because my goodness, the people here in this country making these, these planes and these boats and these tanks. So many of them women, by the way. 
doing that work. It's a story all by itself. And by the way, the fact that we reduced the amount of oil Germany was able to manufacture from 100% to 1% and to cripple the German army. Hitler didn't have gas for his own Mercedes. And you could hear Ambrose say that with pride. The story of George McGovern and, of course, the story of the conscience of a soldier here on Our American Stories. our American stories, some of our very favorite stories have come from authors, folks who've spent years or often a lifetime studying or living a topic. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear author Neil Gabler's talk about Barbara Streisand, his terrific book about her life, a Brooklyn lady, by the way. Terry Teachout, his remarkable piece on Louis Armstrong and his book on Louis Armstrong. We did that in celebration of Armstrong's life. And Richard Zack's terrific new book on Mark Twain and how he lost all of his money and got some of it back, and then lost it all over again. And today we have a very special author joining us, one who has lived a life worthy of several books. For 18 years, Charles Campisi was chief of the New York Police Department's Internal Affairs Bureau, the largest anti-corruption unit in the world. He held that position longer than anyone else, and as you can imagine, the man has some stories. He is the author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, and he joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Charles. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Charles, before we get into the book, we like to start things where we always start them here in Our American Stories, with where you were born, your parents, and what you did as a kid that led you to be a cop, and a cop that ultimately chased bad cops. Um, what led you to become the man you were, decisions and forces in your life when you were young? Well, really, it starts off when I was about five years old. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my parents were also born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents uh, immigrated from, uh, from Italy you know, back in the 1890s. And at that time, I had an aunt who lived two doorways away from the old 83rd precinct, which was on Wilson Avenue in, uh, in Brooklyn. And as a kid, five years old, we visited. I would be there, and I would be uh, playing in the streets, as we did back then in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. And I got to meet and talk to and admire some of the police officers that worked basically right next door. And they were very nice people. They were people that I wanted to emulate. Uh, they would talk to me. As a matter of fact, one officer, an officer, by, his name was Mike. I don't know his last name. I don't think I ever did know his last name. Would let me walk down the street with him. There was even a time he put his police hat on my head and said, come on, you're with me, partner. And it was a great experience. And from that very early age, I knew I wanted to be like them. I knew I wanted to be someone who was counted on to help and someone who would be uh, available when people needed them. And that's really how it all starts. And that's how it starts for so many of us. You know, how uh, we behave as adults in our professions can actually impact whether young people choose that profession. And what a great illustration of that, uh, Charles. But if you had had a different experience with a police officer or two, you may have had a fundamentally different life. Absolutely. I might have taken an entirely different path. 
It's so true. And then talk about Brooklyn at the time, been during your formative years, and talk about this place, Brooklyn. It's one of the more remarkable parts of New York City. It's the biggest borough. It has the most population. And everybody who goes to New York City always goes to Manhattan. But I've always submitted the most interesting parts of New York are in, in the boroughs where the folks live who actually service and take care of that big island called Manhattan Island. Talk about Brooklyn. Well, Brooklyn was a great place to grow up. Uh, we lived in a multicultural neighborhood. We all got along. There were people on my on my block where I lived from all over the world, immigrant families, uh, new people coming into the country, and we were all friends. We all played, and we could play in the street. There was no worries about uh, having a child on the street alone, and we played all the games that, that kids played in the mid-50s and, and early 60s. We played stickball in the middle of the street, and we used to use the sewers as different bases, uh, home plate, second base. Uh, we played stoop ball. We played all the things that, that, that Brooklyn basically came to be known for. And it was a wonderful place to go up. We had the Dodgers. We had uh, everything you could want was there in Brooklyn. You know, it's a ma- remarkable. As Barbara Streisand grew up in Brooklyn, as you know. Yes. And, and so did Neil Diamond. But what people didn't know until I did that book was that Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were at Erasmus High School at the exact same time, in the exact same class. That's didn't, crazy. didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, because that's how big Erasmus High School is. And by the way, Brooklyn has a population of what, Charles? You know, four million people? Yes. And a matter of fact, there was a, a television show uh, called Welcome Back, Carter that portrayed Brooklyn as the third largest city in America if it was taken out of, uh, out of the Manhattan, out of the New York City five boroughs. It would be the third largest city in America. And I remember some of the cities, especially Philadelphia, not quite liking that. But, right. uh, yes, it's a big place, and it could be one of the largest cities in America. Indeed, and I've always told friends I grew up in northern Jersey, and that was back in the day when your parents would let you take your bicycle, go over the George Washington Bridge, strap your bike to a pole, get on a subway, and go anywhere you want, just be back by the time the sun sets. And a group of us would go out, and we would actually take trains all the way to Coney Island. And I had one friend who grew up in Brooklyn, and he had us bicycle from the Brooklyn Bridge straight down Ocean Parkway, all the way to Coney Island, and stopping all the way for all the different neighborhoods, from the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods all the way to Little Odessa and Brighton Beach, which is all Russian. And it's truly a miracle, Brooklyn. And I urge all people who are listening, take an extra day or two when you go to New York City and get out of the city and go see the boroughs and go see life as it's lived outside of that, that big, that big, big uh, Manhattan Island. Uh, Charles, so you, 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 you grow up, you come out, you go out of high school. Talk about your formative and early years uh, at the New York City Police Department. Okay, I've, I joined the police department. I'm selected in 1973. It was a long process because while I was in high school, I had applied to become a police officer. And you go through a variety of uh, testing, uh, physical testing, medical testing, psychological testing, background. And when I left high school, I entered college. And, again, I went to college in Long Island University, the Brooklyn Center, downtown Brooklyn, right in the heart of Brooklyn. And, you know, basically it was a a tough process to become a police officer. So when I first get there, uh, you go into the academy. Academy is very, you know, very rigorous. Uh, physical training, which wasn't a problem for me at the time, you know, 21 years old, uh, you know, playing all kinds of sports. I mean, I love sports. I, I never was really any good in any of the sports, but I love to play, and that was all that was important, that I, I got a chance to play. 
And uh, going into the police department, we were coming in right after the NAP Commission. NAP Commission was, uh, people might remember from Frank Serpico. He was the impetus behind the NAP Commission and, and his testimony and uh, his courage to come forward and try to stop corruption is uh, uh, well documented, not only in books, but you know, Al Pacino played him in the, in the movie. So, uh, yeah. You know, coming- Charles, hold that thought for a second. We're going to come in after a commercial break and pick it up after the Serpico uh, moment because it's such a critical moment in the life of the New York City Police Department. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And Charles, we were just talking about, and by the way, if you've not seen the movie Serpico, uh, which stars Al Pacino, it's a very young Al Pacino, by the way, and it was a book that spawned this thing called the Knapp Commission, which if you lived in the New York area, and even if you didn't, but studied law enforcement, it was one of the seminal sea changes in how to think about, you know, thinking about corruption in large city police departments in particular. Um, talk about that moment in the history of the NYPD, particularly as this film really got out there, because it had to change the perception of what people thought the average cop was up to day to day. Well, you're absolutely right, because what we found in uh, from the NAP Commission, from uh, from Frank Serpico's story and then from the, uh, uh, the movie, was that corruption was very systemic in the New York City Police Department. By that, I mean it flowed from the lowest levels all the way up to the top echelon of the police department. And it flowed horizontally. It flowed ver- vertically. It seemed that everybody, and it really wasn't everybody, but they made it seem like everybody had their hand in the till. But I have to tell you that it was probably most of the people who had their hand in the till. And although when Knapp was finished with his investigation, he could only prove criminality on uh, the highest rank he was able to prove criminality was at the lieutenant's rank. But there was so much evidence that showed it went much, much higher to, uh, to the other ranks within the police department. So when the Knapp Commission finishes their investigation and Serpico's story is, is well told, uh, major changes within the police department. They moved people and dismissed people and fired people and at the some of the lower levels arrested people and moved them out of the police department. So they changed the police department completely. Now, I'm entering the police department during this, uh, this change where you saw you know, chiefs and inspectors, they're high-level people being forced out, being forced to retire, some of them being fired, some of them being prosecuted. Um, so it really changes everything. And systemic corruption, based upon the NAP Commission results, basically doesn't exist anymore in the police department of the NYPD. And we can thank Frank Serpico and the NAP Commission for that. So what they do is they put in place a division. They call it the Internal Affairs Division. 
and their job is to root out corruption. And what they do is very, very good at stopping the systemic corruption. But they remain stagnant over the years. They don't grow. See, corrupt people and corruption will find a way. It's like water. It'll find its own level. Yep. And what the old Internal Affairs Division didn't do was grow, was didn't learn from, uh, from their mistakes, did not uh, adapt to changing corruption patterns, and a new type of corruption that we termed opportunistic corruption was allowed to grow and grow. Now, opportunistic corruption comes at a time when the crack epidemic is flourishing throughout all major cities, especially New York. And now we have something new that they didn't necessarily have uh, pre-nap days. Pre-nap was mostly gambling, was mostly prostitution, the vices. Yep. They were uh, profiting from looking the other way, not necessarily participating in the action, but allowing it to flourish. Now this new corruption where they're taking advantage of situations, taking advantage of the large sums of money available through uh, narcotics and narcotics enforcement, uh, becomes much more difficult to, to uh, detect using the old methods. And the old IAD did not grow. They did not evolve while corruption mutated. Well, and that's the story of any company, any life, any church, any organization. Good people just can't manage in their own minds to wrap their heads around how an evil person will do anything, avoid anything to just do bad stuff. So it's no easy job to be uh, running or working with internal affairs for that reason alone. But also, when you first joined internal affairs and you were the chief of the NYPD's Eternal Affairs Bureau as, as we ended. You, what was it like then when you first started? What, what did the cops think of Internal Affairs? I mean, we get that uh, opinion from TV shows that people think that the guys in Internal Affairs are bad guys because they're going after cops. But I would, I would guess that good cops were rooting for Internal Affairs to get the bad cops out of their midst. Well, in the, in the very beginning, when we first started... We looked at the Internal Affairs Division, and we, we wanted to find out what was the opinion of uh, who was the Internal Affairs investigator that the cops identified with. And we did focus groups, and we brought in oh, a couple of hundred police officers, all different ranks, all different assignments, uh, all different levels, they, you know, young officers, more senior officers. And we asked them, who is the typical Internal Affairs investigator, and what do they do? Now, their opinions their beliefs, whether it's true or not, is what they believed, is that was reality to them. And their opinion was that if you were in internal affairs back then, when I first started in internal affairs, 1993, that you were one of three people. You were either a coward because you were afraid to be a real cop and you went and hid in internal affairs rather than be on the street and be on patrol. Number two, you were a thief. You were a rat. You got caught dirty. And in exchange for some type of leniency, you agreed to go to internal affairs and rat out other cops. Or you were a zealot, someone who thinks they're going to change the world uh, by their mere presence, by their mere force of will, the world will be a better place. Now, again, I don't know if that was true or not, but that was their belief. And that was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. Because my own experience with the internal affairs was not very positive. Now that, again, we're talking about the old Internal Affairs Division. And it's something I call the great Christmas tree caper of 1978, where I was involved in an incident 
where there was a major demonstration down by City Hall, and I had recovered through a cab driver a briefcase belonging to a businesswoman. And we did everything we needed to do. We properly vouched it. We, we uh, notified the, the woman to come pick up her bag. We did everything we needed to do. It was done under supervision. And uh, it was textbook because at the time I was studying hard for the sergeant's exam, and I kind of knew the procedures as well as I, I ever would know them. So a couple of – this is just before Christmas. So about a week after Christmas, I get a notice to report to the old Internal Affairs Division and bring my notes and my memo book, as we called it, uh, for a certain date. So I looked at that date, and I saw that that was the day that I recovered the, uh, the briefcase. There was no money in it. There was a credit card in it. But, you know, papers, no, business papers that were valuable to the company and valuable to the woman, obviously. So they asked me, uh, point blank, did I steal a Christmas tree from a Christmas tree lot that was a couple of miles away? And I said, no, I never stole a Christmas tree, and I can prove my location. They didn't want to hear it. They were very quick, okay, we're just going to dismiss you. You go away, and this is going to stay on your record that you were accused of stealing a Christmas tree. And it wasn't just me. There was uh, numerous officers. Uh, we were all riding three-wheel scooters at the time, and they couldn't get the full number because the Christmas tree branch was obscuring part of it. So anybody who was working that day in the vicinity was called down to the old Internal Affairs Division. And I argued with them, proving that I was nowhere near the location, and I had two supervisors who could verify that I was miles away, and they just didn't care. They were just quick, and they want to close the case, go away. You know? And that's the impression you get. These guys aren't good investigators. These guys aren't here to help me. These guys are just here to you know, do their job and quick go home at the end of the night and not worry about anybody else. So coming in with that understanding – that they weren't here to help me. They were here just to be expeditious. Uh, and knowing that the general impression is that they're cowards and thieves and zealots, we had to change that image. We had to change that perspective. So the only way to do that is no longer allow anybody to volunteer to come into internal affairs. I certainly didn't volunteer to go. I was drafted by then Commissioner Kelly, who said to me, we're having problems, because there was a new commission that came in 20 years later, the Marlin Commission yep. that had to do with a man named Michael Dowd. And people in the press uh, had Michael Dowd labeled as the dirtiest cop alive. And Michael was stealing drugs and beating people and stealing money and, and even doing it off-duty, coming in on his days off because he could make lots of money. Yep. And the old IAD, with their old tactics, let Michael go on for six, seven, possibly eight years doing what he was doing, and they never got a chance to catch him because they weren't doing it right. So coming to, with that in my background, we said no more volunteers into internal affairs. We have to select people. We have to draft people, and we have to draft the people who are the most knowledgeable, the best investigators, the people with pristine records, the people with good reputations, the people the other cops admire, the other cops look up to. And that's so smart, Charles, and you changed the culture overnight. We're talking to Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More of Charles's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And going away with this volunteer system and making it be that the only way you can get in internal affairs was to be chosen, I would assume almost overnight this changes the nature and character of internal affairs itself, Charles. Well, it helped so much because within a short period of time, we started to do additional focus groups, you know, different people, but the same uh, basic backgrounds, cops from all different ranks and all. And amazingly, they weren't telling us about cowards and thieves and zealots. They were talking about, you took our best sergeant, you took our best lieutenant, you know, she was the best boss we ever had, and you stole her from us. And it no longer was thieves and, and cowards. It was the best people go to IAB. That's not fair. They shouldn't go to IAB. They should be allowed to stay where they are. But IAB being such an important part of policing, and I used to tell my, my peers and my supervisors, you know, crime reduction in New York is great. We're, we're breaking all records. But I'll tell you, we have another big scandal, and all our, our, our accolades have gone down the drain. Yep. We have to prove to the people that we could police ourselves. We can prove to the people that we're going to get rid of those bad cops. And what we found over our years is the overwhelming majority of cops, men and women, hardworking, dedicated people, come to work, do a very difficult job. But there's that small percentage, that half a percent, if you would, maybe one percent, that will steal the headlines every day away from the good cops. And in the New York City Police Department, where you have over 50,000 employees, 37,000 sworn officers, traffic agents, school safety agents, uh, assorted staff and computer analysts, that 50,000 people, if you're looking at 1%, you're looking at 500 people that you've got to worry about. And so that 1%, I think this is another point that I think is worth illustrating, is if you got 1%, then you've got quite a number of people out there doing bad things. But it's how long they can do bad things and to how many people. I, I had a lot of experience in Newark. I played a lot of basketball there. I had some friends there. And there was one cop that everybody knew was bad and everybody was afraid of for good reason. And he carried on on the streets for a decade without recourse till he was finally cuffed and stuffed but the what the harm he did because everybody assumed everybody knew but but everybody didn't know it it turns out he was a rogue guy who just he got away with things for far too long and the impact and the damage it did to the opinion of people on the street as it relates to the Newark Police Department i say it, it they for people who encountered that guy they still haven't recovered charles I agree with you, absolutely, that one person can affect the image of the entire force because that's the one that's going to be the, the most cognizant in your mind, and that's the one when he or she gets caught, makes the front page. And all the good that you've done gets washed away with that corruption scandal. Yep, and let's talk about a story I remember from back uh, when you were there, and that's the Abner Lawima case. And this is a difficult, difficult story. Take your time, walk us through it. Okay, that's one of the most horrific stories in the annals of policing anywhere. And it all starts on a Saturday night in Brooklyn in uh, a club called Club Rendezvous. There's a big party, mostly Haitian Americans attending this party, many Haitian Americans living in the community. There's a big fight that erupts inside the party. It spills out into the street. The police are called. 
and the police send everybody on their way. There are no arrests made at that time. And while they're breaking up this large disturbance, there's a police officer named Justin Volpe who's standing in front of Club Rendezvous, and a man runs by and sucker punches Justin, knocks him to the ground, and runs away. Justin is now infuriated, and he gets in the car with other officers, and they start to look for the man who sucker punched Justin. They spot Mr. Abner Louima, who is not the man who punched Justin, but they believe it's him. They grab him, they arrest him, they handcuff him, they put him in the back of a police car, and they beat him up. They hit him several times as they're driving from the scene back to the 70th precinct, 70 precinct in, uh, in Brooklyn. As they're taking him, two or three times they stop, they punch him, they smack him, they hit him. Uh, they then bring him into the station house. They bring him before the desk officer and they explain that this man sucker punched Justin Volpe. We take his belt away, his shoelaces, and the things they normally would do so when they put him in a cell, he can't hurt himself. But they do something different. They start to walk him back to where the cell area is so that they can start the booking process. As they're walking him, because his, his pants were kind of baggy, they didn't fit well, uh, and they had taken his belt, his pants start to fall down to his ankles. And he's kind of shuffling now, more like a duck walk. And there are officers who are working there. Now, this is on a midnight tour. Uh, so it happened someplace about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. They see him being walked back, Mr. Louima, they see him being walked back to the cell area, and nobody thinks much of it. The cell area is to the left of the hallway, but they don't take Mr. Louima to the cell area. They take him to the right, which is a, a, a bathroom that's used by the officers. It's not a public bathroom. It's an a, 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 a office bathroom. So they take him in the bathroom, and then they proceed to beat him again. One officer is in there is beating him again, Justin Volpe. Then, for whatever reason, and this is where my mind can't, can't grasp this, he takes a broomstick, and Justin Volpe breaks the broomstick, and then he rams it into the rectum of Mr. Louima. I can't imagine the pain that this man went through. Uh, a second officer is reported to have entered the bathroom, while Justin is doing this to Mr. Louima, he then, is, he then stops after a period of time. He takes Mr. Louima, puts him in the cell, and he waves the stick with feces and blood and, and who knows what. He's waving it around uh, as a prize, as a, some sort of trophy. In the meantime, Mr. Louima is in the cell in excruciating pain. The next morning when the next tour comes on, Mr. Louima is very, very sick. He's in pain. They decide, the new officers decide, wait, this man's sick. We've got to get him to a hospital. And they take him to Coney Island Hospital, where he tells a nurse about being sodomized with a stick by these police officers. What the nurse does is she makes a mistake, and then the Internal Affairs Bureau, my investigator, compounds that mistake. She calls Internal Affairs. And she tells Internal Affairs her husband was assaulted. Now, the officer who takes the call, I mean, talk about bad luck for, for all of us, it's his first day at the command center taking phone calls, very first day. He makes a rookie mistake. Well, he is a rookie. When she cannot pronounce Mr. Louima's name, 
and she mispronounces it two or three times. He says to her, lady, this your husband? Don't you know his name? Can't you pronounce it? Could you spell it for us? And she says, but she didn't want to really get involved. She wanted to just pass off the information. She says, let me call you back. And then here's where, where my investigator makes the mistake. He says, okay, lady, call me back. You never let the person off the phone. Right. You get as much information as you can. You start a preliminary investigation. You notify your supervisors. You do all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. So a little later in the day, we could have had we could have been involved in the case a little earlier if he would have handled the call right. Now, naturally, hold on, Charles, hold that thought right there because we're coming up upon a break. And we want to hear the rest, rest of this story, the Abner Louima story, as horrifying a story as there was in the history of the New York Police Department and the man who was in charge of internal affairs or was working at internal affairs at the time, Charles Campisi, his book, Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. More after these messages. Our American Stories, we continue our final segment in this hour-long conversation with Charles Campisi, author of Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. And we were talking about the Abner Louima case and the unfortunate luck of internal affairs getting the call and a rookie answering that call. And what he did, not getting that person's information, letting that call disappear was something, again, that someone more trained, Charles, wouldn't have done. But this was really bad news for internal affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was probably, I was there in internal affairs for 21 years, the chief for 17 and a half years. This was the worst mistake you could make under the worst case that there could be. And so what happens next? Uh, how does the media get a hold of this? How do okay, people that, find that, out, that, and what happens? That's, that's an excellent point, because the media doesn't get a hold of this until Wednesday. Now, this is a Sunday morning when we get the phone call, and they drop the call. We get a second call about a man being in the hospital, injured, seriously injured. That call, a couple of hours later, is handled absolutely correctly. We, get a, we dispatch investigative teams to the hospital. We send a team to the 7-0 precinct to secure it and, uh, and freeze the, the bathroom. We send people to Club Rendezvous to try to get as much information as possible. And our investigation is off and running on Sunday, Sunday night. Monday morning, I get all this information. Number one, they, they called me at home to tell me all this information. And I said to them, you have the resources you need. What else could I send you? What could I give you? And we're off and running. I get to the police commissioner. His name was Howard Safer at the time. I get to him first thing Monday morning. 
and I start to lay out our investigation for him. And he's looking at me saying, do you believe this really happened? Because nobody wanted to believe that a man would do this to another man. A human being would do this to another human being. And worst of all, a cop would do this to another human being. And then the compound that it happened in a police station. And people didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to believe it, but the evidence was so overwhelming. So by Monday morning, we've identified who, work, who was working that night. We brought photo arrays to the hospital. We had Mr. Luima pick out the officers that were there, who hit him, who put him in the car. We, we had this investigation in full steam by Monday afternoon. And Monday afternoon, uh, I'm called down to City Hall to brief the mayor, Mayor Giuliani. And I brief him on the case, and I'm giving him the facts and the circumstances. And as the true prosecutor he was, you got to remember, Rudy Giuliani was the United States attorney uh, for the Southern District of New York. He's asking pertinent questions. And I have to be, be honest, we had the answers because our investigation was solid up to that point. We were working with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. And the press doesn't get this until Wednesday, and they start asking questions. Now, naturally, the nature of internal affairs work, I can't reveal my investigation to them. Yep. So they keep saying, well, what are you doing, police department? What are you doing, internal affairs? And when I said to them, don't worry, it's under investigation. But they wanted more. They wanted names and dates and facts and figures, which I could not give them because I'm working with prosecutors. And what prosecutor wants his or her case in the newspaper before they get a chance to bring it before a grand jury? Yep. Well, the good news is within two weeks, we had five indictments. Now, if you know the criminal justice system, to get people indicted in two weeks, to get five police officers indicted in two weeks, that's a pretty quick time period. That's, that's, a, that's a monumental task, and we did it. Well, Charles, you did it respecting the in- presumption of innocence of the cops, which we have to always respect. Um, but, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. Right. Everybody. And sometimes Citizens, we see, Charles, sometimes we see a prosecutor go in and get an indictment before there's any investigation. And, and that's the dynamic tension between internal affairs and the media. And the media wants, and, and the masses, well, they want a prosecution or they want an indictment immediately. They want but, an execution Well, they today. want an execution. And your job is to get to the truth. And this is why it's so important for internal affairs to have integrity for internal affairs to have the kind of people, the quality people that can protect the very brand and image of the department by so seeking out truth that they're willing to get that bad cop and prosecute him, but only if he's violated the law. And we went step by step. And I tell you what was great about this case. We always hear about the blue wall of silence. Well, in this particular case, once some of the facts became known, once the officers in the 7-0 precinct realized that this really happened, they came forward, and they provided the critical information that we needed to get the indictment in two weeks. We had an officer who started to put things together. He saw Volpe and, um, and Mr. Luima walking into the, into, towards the bathroom area. He saw Luima with a stick in his hand, and he says, wait a minute, this might have happened. He calls us and says, I have information, and I want to talk to you guys right now. Now, we're talking about you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we get a team together, and we rush the team over to, to, to him, and he starts giving us a piece of information. Then another cop comes forward with a piece of information, and our case starts to build real quickly and real solid. So the blue wall of silence, if there is such a thing, 
and I can attest that there is, but I'll talk about that in a second, it crumbles in this case because it was so horrendous that people in the precinct, other police officers, said this can't happen. We can't stand by and let this happen. So very, very encouraged by the officers coming forward in that case. And by the way, it was remarkable. The, the right things happened. Uh, people were prosecuted. They were thrown in prison like they should have. And ultimately, Abner Lewina was, well, not made whole because you can't be made whole after something like this. But there were civil fines and the Louima family was compensated for their damages. I can't imagine what that man went through. And he received compensation, and Justin Volpe is serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, I believe, in Minnesota. And that's what justice looks like and needs to look like always for all. And by the way, equal justice under the law, that's the, that's the game for the cops, equal justice for the citizens, equal justice. And let, talk about that blue wall of silence in our final minutes together. Um, because it's, it's there, uh, but how is it different than it was back in the day? Well, I'll tell you, everybody knows of, the, knows of the blue wall of silence, but my question is, what makes people think that a wall of silence exists only within the policing community, which it does, but it exists in every occupation and every group. There is, we had a case that we investigated. There was two firefighters in a fire station get into a fight. One of them hits the other with a folding chair serious injury. The fire department, which also handles EMS, picks the man up and rushes him to the hospital. They say he fell off of a ladder while he was fixing something. They quick clean up the the crime scene. They take all the blood. They throw the chair away. They do all of this stuff. So would we call that a red wall of silence because they covered up for their own? In the medical profession, very rarely do you see doctors testifying against other doctors. And we've had cases where Doctors have botched surgeries, and the other people in the operating room never came forward. So could we call that the white wall of silence? In, in occupations, especially occupations where you rely on the other person for safety and for your very life, there tends to be a wall of silence. Is there a blue wall of silence? Yes, but it is not just in the police profession. It is in all professions. Now you'd see it in the military, too, in combat. You'd see this, by the way, when the, when, the, when the Armstrong, Lance Armstrong doping thing happened in bicycling, the doping in baseball. Well, it turned out there was a lot more of it than people cared to admit because, A, no one wanted to snitch, and, B, a lot more people were doing it than cared to admit. Absolutely. And, and these are things that happen because human beings are flawed, and that's just the nature of any occupation and, frankly, any walk of life. Our human beings are flawed. Uh, tell me one last misconception people might have about not only the life in internal affairs, but the life and the daily life of particularly a big city cop. See, cops don't come to work with, every day with the idea of hurting people. So to some people, they think that these cops, all they want to do is abuse people's rights. They want to hurt people. They're racist. They're prejudiced. Cops don't come to work to hurt people. Sometimes there are situations where, where people are injured and people are hurt. In internal affairs, internal affairs investigators are not there to hurt good cops. And that's the, the impression we get mainly because of in the movies and in television, internal affairs is always the, the outsider, the cop who is uh, uh, trying to hurt the hero or heroine from doing a, a good job. Yep. They're trying to prevent Dirty Harry from getting those bad guys off the street, and they want to stop the cops who are, who are uh, uh, dragging in the drug dealers. That's not the case. We, we're police officers. 
we're there to support good cops, to help good cops, but we're there primarily to make sure that the bad cops don't get away with it and they don't tarnish the reputation and steal the headlines away from the good cops. Well, we've been talking to Charles Campisi, who is the chief of NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, the biggest internal affairs bureau in the country, representing and doing work with and for the biggest police force in the country, with at the time, at one point in time, 41,000 cops, over 50,000 in total. And that's bigger than, well, many towns in America. And when you have that many people, you're going to have to police some of the bad guys. Charles Campisi's book... Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops, is a must-read. We don't do a lot of books on our American stories, but when we do them, we know you'll love them. And, Charles, thanks for the storytelling, and thanks for telling this story for all the cops, particularly the good cops, Charles, as you said, the overwhelming majority that you serve. Well, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure to be, and I, I hope uh, uh, we added to uh, some of the changes that we need. You bet. And thanks again. That's Charles Campisi, Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. Go to Amazon.com and get it now. Charles Campisi's story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 